0: Welcome back, everyone, to Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. Today, chapters 22 and 23. And now, chapter 22, Tarzan Recovers His Reason. As Tarzan let the pebbles from the recovered pouch run through his fingers, his thoughts returned to the pile of yellow ingots about which the Arabs and the Abyssinians had waged their relentless battle. WHAT WAS THERE IN COMMON BETWEEN THAT PILE OF DIRTY METAL AND THE BEAUTIFUL, SPARKLING PEBBLES THAT HAD FORMERLY BEEN IN HIS POUCH? WHAT WAS THE METAL? FROM WHENCE HAD IT COME? WHAT WAS THAT TANTALIZING HALF CONVICTION WHICH SEEMED TO DEMAND THE RECOGNITION OF HIS MEMORY THAT THE YELLOW PILE FOR WHICH THESE MEN HAD FOUGHT AND DIED HAD BEEN INTIMATELY CONNECTED WITH HIS PAST, THAT IT HAD BEEN HIS? WHAT HAD BEEN HIS PAST? HE SHOOK HIS HEAD. Vaguely, the memory of his apeish childhood passed slowly in review. Then came a strangely tangled mass of faces, figures, and events, which seemed to have no relation to Tarzan of the Apes, and yet which were, even in their fragmentary form, familiar. Slowly and painfully, recollection was attempting to reassert itself. The hurt brain was mending, as the cause of its recent failure to function was being slowly absorbed or removed. "'by the healing processes of perfect circulation. "'The people who now passed before his mind's eye "'for the first time in weeks were familiar faces, "'but yet he could neither place them "'in the niches they had once filled in his past life, "'nor called them by name. "'One was a fair she, "'and it was her face which most often moved him "'through the tangled recollections of his convalescing brain. "'Who was she? "'What had she been to Tarzan of the Apes?' He seemed to see her about the very spot upon which the pile of gold had been unearthed by the Abyssinians, but the surroundings were vastly different from those which now obtained. There was a building, there were many buildings, and there were hedges, fences, and flowers. Tarzan puckered his brow in puzzled study of the wonderful problem. For an instant he seemed to grasp the whole of a true explanation, and then, just as success was within his grasp, the picture faded into a jungle scene where a naked, white youth danced in company with a band of hairy, primordial apes. Tarzan shook his head and sighed. Why was it that he could not recollect? At least he was sure that in some way the pile of gold, the place where it lay, the subtle aroma of the elusive she he had been pursuing, the memory figure of the white woman, and he himself, were inextricably connected by the ties of a forgotten past." if the woman belonged there, what better place to search or await her than the very spot which his broken recollections seemed to assign to her? It was worth trying. Tarzan slipped the thong of the empty pouch over his shoulder and started off through the trees in the direction of the plain. At the outskirts of the forest he met the Arabs returning in search of Ahmed Zek. Hiding, he let them pass. "'and then resumed his way toward the charred ruins of the home "'he had been almost upon the point of recalling to his memory. "'His journey across the plain was interrupted by the discovery "'of a small herd of antelope in a little swale, "'where the cover and the wind were well combined to make stalking easy. "'A fat yearling rewarded a half-hour of stealthy creeping "'and a sudden savage rush, and it was late in the afternoon "'when the ape-man settled himself upon his haunches beside his kill "'to enjoy the fruits of his skill— his cunning, and his prowess. His hunger satisfied, thirst next claimed his attention. The river lured him by the shortest path toward its refreshing waters, and when he had drunk, night had already fallen, and he was some half mile or more downstream from the point where he had seen the pile of yellow ingots, and where he hoped to meet the memory woman, or find some clue to her whereabouts or her identity. To the jungle bred... Time is usually a matter of small moment, and haste, except when endangered by terror, by rage, or by hunger, is distasteful. Today was gone. Therefore, tomorrow, of which there was an in infinite procession, would answer admirably for Tarzan's further quest. And besides, the ape man was tired and would sleep. A tree afforded him the safety, seclusion, and comforts of a well appointed bedchamber and to the chorus of the hunters and of the hunted of the wild river bank, he soon dropped off into deep slumber. Morning found him both hungry and thirsty again, and dropping from his tree he made his way to the drinking place at the river's edge. There he found Numa the lion ahead of him. The big fellow was lapping the water greedily, and at the approach of Tarzan along the trail in his rear, he raised his head, and turning his gaze backward across his maned shoulders, Glared at the intruder. A low growl of warning rumbled from his throat, but Tarzan, guessing that the beast had just quitted his kill and was well filled, merely made a slight detour and continued to the river, where he stopped a few yards above the tawny cat and, dropping upon his hands and knees, plunged his face into the cool water. For a moment the lion continued to eye the man, then he resumed his drinking, and man and beast quenched their thirst side by side. "'each apparently oblivious of the other's presence. "'Numa was the first to finish. "'Raising his head, he gazed across the river for a few minutes "'with that stony fixity of attention "'which is characteristic of his kind. "'But for the ruffling of his black mane "'to the touch of the passing breeze, "'he might have been wrought from golden bronze, "'so motionless, so statuesque his pose. "'A deep sigh from the cavernous lungs dispelled the illusion.' The mighty head swung slowly around until the yellow eyes rested upon the man. The bristled lip curved upward, exposing yellow fangs. Another warning growl vibrated the heavy jowls, and the King of Beasts turned majestically about and paced slowly up the trail into the dense reeds. Tarzan of the Apes drank on, but from the corners of his gray eyes he watched the great brute's every move until he had disappeared from view, and, after, "'His keen ears marked the movements of the carnivore. "'A plunge in the river was followed by a scant breakfast of eggs "'which chance discovered to him, "'and then he set off upriver toward the ruins of the bungalow "'where the golden ingots had marked the centre of yesterday's battle. "'And when he came upon the spot, "'great was his surprise and consternation, "'for the yellow metal had disappeared. "'The earth, travelled by the feet of horses and men, gave no clue.' It was as though the ingots had evaporated into thin air. The ape man was at a loss to know where to turn or what next to do. There was no sign of any spoor which might denote that the she had been here. The metal was gone, and if there was any connection between the she and the metal, it seemed useless to wait for her now that the latter had been removed elsewhere. Everything seemed to elude him the pretty pebbles, the yellow metal. The she, his memory. Tarzan was disgusted. He would go back into the jungle and look for Chulk, and so he turned his steps once more toward the forest. He moved rapidly, swinging across the plain in a long, easy trot, and at the edge of the forest, taking to the trees with the agility and speed of a small monkey. His direction was aimless. He merely raced on and on through the jungle. The joy of unfettered action, his principal urge, with the hope of stumbling upon some clue to Chulk or the she, a secondary incentive. For two days he roamed about, killing, eating, drinking, and sleeping, wherever inclination and the means to indulge it occurred simultaneously. It was upon the morning of the third day that the scent spoor of a horse and man were wafted faintly to his nostrils. Instantly he altered his course to glide silently through the branches in the direction from which the scent came. It was not long before he came upon a solitary horseman riding toward the east. Instantly his eyes confirmed what his nose had previously suspected. The rider was he who had stolen his pretty pebbles. The light of rage flared suddenly in the gray eyes as the ape man dropped lower among the branches until he moved almost directly above the unconscious werper. There was a quick leap, and the Belgian felt a heavy body hurtle onto the rump of his terror-stricken mount. The horse, snorting, leaped forward. Giant arms encircled the rider, and in the twinkling of an eye he was dragged from his saddle to find himself lying in the narrow trail with a naked, white giant kneeling upon his breast. Recognition came to Werper with the first glance of his captor's face, and a pallor of fear overspread his features. "'Strong fingers were at his throat, fingers of steel. "'He tried to cry out, to plead for his life, "'but the cruel fingers denied him speech, "'as they were surely denying him life. "'The pretty pebbles!' cried the man upon his breast. "'What did you do with the pretty pebbles, "'with Tarzan's pretty pebbles?' "'The fingers relaxed to permit a reply. "'For some time Werper could only choke and cough. "'At last he regained the powers of speech.' Ahmed Zek, the Arab, stole them from me,'' he cried, ''and made me give up the pouts and the pebbles.'' ''I saw all that,'' replied Tarzan. ''But the pebbles and the pouts were not the pebbles of Tarzan. There were only such pebbles as filled the bottoms of the rivers and the shelving banks beside them. Even the Arab would not have them, for he threw them away in anger when he had looked upon them. ''It is my pretty pebbles that I want. Where are they?'' ''I do not know,'' "'I do not know!' cried Werper. "'I gave them to Achmed Zek, or he would have killed me. "'A few minutes later he followed me along the trail to slay me, "'although he had promised to molest me no further, "'and I shot and killed him. "'But the pouch was not upon his person, "'and though I searched about the jungle for some time, "'I could not find it.' "'I found it, I tell you,' growled Tarzan, "'and I also found the pebbles "'which Achmed Zek had thrown away in disgust.' "'They were not Tarzan's pebbles. "'You have hidden them. "'Tell me where they are, or I will kill you.' "'And the brown fingers of the ape-man "'closed a little tighter upon the throat of his victim. "'Werper struggled to free himself. "'My God! "'Lord Greystoke!' "'He managed to scream. "'Would you commit murder for a handful of stones?' "'The fingers at his throat relaxed. "'A puzzled, faraway expression "'softened the gray eyes. "'Lord Greystoke?' "'repeated the ape-man. "'Lord Greystoke? "'Who is Lord Greystoke? "'Where have I heard that name before?' "'Why, man, you are Lord Greystoke,' cried the Belgian. "'You were injured by a falling rock "'when the earthquake shattered the passage "'to the underground chamber, "'to which you and your black waziri "'had come to fetch golden ingots back to your bungalow. "'The blow shattered your memory. "'You're John Clayton. "'Lord Greystoke. "'Don't you remember?' "'John Clayton! Lord Greystoke!' repeated Tarzan. Then for a moment he was silent. Presently his hand went falteringly to his forehead. An expression of wonderment filled his eyes, of wonderment and sudden understanding. The forgotten name had reawakened the returning memory that had been struggling to reassert itself. The ape-man relinquished his grasp upon the throat of the Belgian and leaped to his feet. "'God!' he cried. And then, Jane! Suddenly he turned to Werper. My wife, he asked. What has become of her? The farm is in ruins. You know. You have had something to do with all this. You followed me to Opar. You stole the jewels, which I thought but pretty pebbles. You're a crook. Do not try to tell me that you're not. He is worse than a crook, said a quiet voice close behind them. Tarzan turned in astonishment to see a tall man in uniform standing in the trail a few paces from him. Back of the man were a number of black soldiers in the uniform of the Congo Free State. "'He is a murderer, monsieur,' continued the officer. "'I have followed him for a long time "'to take him back to stand trial "'for the killing of his superior officer.' Werper was upon his feet now, gazing, white and trembling, at the fate which had overtaken him "'even in the fastness of the labyrinthine jungle. "'Instinctively he turned to flee, "'but Tarzan of the apes reached out a strong hand "'and grasped him by the shoulder. "'Wait,' said the ape-man to his captive. "'This gentleman wishes you, and so do I. "'When I am through with you, he may have you. "'Tell me what has become of my wife.' "'The Belgian officer eyed the almost-naked, "'white giant with curiosity.' He noted the strange contrast of primitive weapons and apparel, and the easy, fluent French which the man spoke. The former denoted the lowest, the latter, the highest type of culture. He could not quite determine the social status of this strange creature, but he knew that he did not relish the easy assurance with which the fellow presumed to dictate when he might take possession of the prisoner. Pardon me, he said, stepping forward and placing his hand on Werper's other shoulder. BUT THIS GENTLEMAN IS MY PRISONER. HE MUST COME WITH ME. WHEN I AM THROUGH WITH HIM, REPLIED TARZAN QUIETLY. THE OFFICER TURNED AND BECKONED TO THE SOLDIER STANDING IN THE TRAIL BEHIND HIM. A COMPANY OF UNIFORMED BLACKS STEPPED QUICKLY FORWARD AND PUSHING PAST THE THREE, SURROUNDED THE APE MAN AND HIS CAPTIVE. BOTH THE LAW AND THE POWER TO ENFORCE IT ARE UPON MY SIDE, ANNOUNCED THE OFFICER. LET US HAVE NO TROUBLE. "'If you have a grievance against this man, "'you may return with me and enter your charge regularly "'before an authorized tribunal.' "'Your legal rights are not above suspicion, my friend,' "'replied Tarzan, "'and your power to enforce your commands "'are only apparent, not real. "'You have presumed to enter British territory "'with an armed force. "'Where is your authority for this invasion? "'Where are the extradition papers "'which warrant the arrest of this man? "'And what assurance have you?' that I cannot bring an armed force about you that will prevent your return to the Congo Free State. The Belgian lost his temper. I have no disposition to argue with a naked savage, he cried. Unless you wish to be hurt, you will not interfere with me. Take the prisoner, sergeant. Werper raised his lips close to Tarzan's ear. Keep me from them, and I can show you the very spot where I saw your wife last night, he whispered. She cannot be far from here at this very minute. The soldiers, following the signal from their sergeant, closed in to seize Werper. Tarzan grabbed the Belgian about the waist, and, burying him beneath his arm as he might have borne a sack of flour, leaped forward in an attempt to break through the cordon. His right fist caught the nearest soldier upon the jaw and sent him hurtling backward upon his fellows. Club rifles were torn from the hands of those who barred his way and right and left the black soldiers stumbled aside in the face of the ape-man's savage break for liberty. So completely did the blacks surround the two that they dared not fire for fear of hitting one of their own number, and Tarzan was already through them and upon the point of dodging into the concealing mazes of the jungle, when one who had sneaked upon him from behind struck him a heavy blow upon the head with a rifle. In an instant the ape-man was down, and a dozen black soldiers were upon his back. When he regained consciousness, he found himself securely bound, as was Werper also. The Belgian officer, success having crowned his efforts, was in good humor, and inclined to chafe his prisoners about the ease with which they had been captured. But from Tarzan of the apes, he elicited no response. Werper, however, was voluble in his protest. He explained that Tarzan was an English lord, but the officer only laughed at the assertion, and advised his prisoner to save his breath. "'for his defense in court. "'As soon as Tarzan regained his senses "'and it was found that he was not seriously injured, "'the prisoners were hastened into line "'and the return march toward the Congo Free State boundary commenced. "'Toward evening, the column halted beside a stream, "'made camp, and prepared the evening meal. "'From the thick foliage of the nearby jungle, "'a pair of fierce eyes watched the activities "'of the uniformed blacks with silent intensity and curiosity.' From beneath beetling brows, the creature saw the boma constructed, the fires built, and the supper prepared. Tarzan and Werper had been lying bound behind a small pile of knapsacks from the time that the company had halted. But with the preparation of the meal completed, their guard ordered them to rise and come forward to one of the fires, where their hands would be unfettered that they might eat. As the giant ape man rose, a startled expression of recognition entered the eyes of the watcher in the jungle and a low guttural broke from the savage lips. Instantly Tarzan was alert, but the answering growl died upon his lips, suppressed by the fear that it might arouse the suspicions of the soldiers. Suddenly an inspiration came to him. He turned toward Werper. "'I am going to speak to you in a loud voice, and in a tongue which you do not understand. I appear to listen intently to what I say, and occasionally mumble something as though replying in the same language.' "'Our escape may hinge upon the success of your efforts.' "'Werper nodded in assent and understanding, "'and immediately there broke from the lips of his companion "'a strange jargon which might have been compared "'with equal propriety to the barking and growling of a dog "'and the chattering of monkeys. "'The nearer soldiers looked in surprise at the ape-man. "'Some of them laughed, while others drew away in evident superstitious fear.' The officer approached the prisoners while Tarzan was still jabbering, and halted behind them, listening in perplexed interest. When Werper mumbled some ridiculous jargon in reply, his curiosity broke bounds, and he stepped forward, demanding to know what language it was that they spoke. Tarzan had gauged the measure of the man's culture from the nature and quality of his conversation during the march, and he rested the success of his reply upon the estimate he had made. "'Greek,' he explained. "'Oh, I thought it was Greek,' replied the officer. "'It has been so many years since I studied it that I was not sure. "'In future, however, I will thank you to speak in a language which I am more familiar with.' "'Werper turned his head to hide a grin, whispering to Tarzan, "'Yeah, it was Greek to him, all right, and to me, too.' "'But one of the black soldiers mumbled in a low voice to a companion.' "'I have heard those sounds before, once at night when I was lost in the jungle. "'I heard the hairy men of the trees talking among themselves, "'and their words were like the words of this white man. "'I wish that we had not bound him. "'He is not a man at all. "'He is a bad spirit, and we shall have bad luck if we do not let him go.' "'And the fellow rolled his eyes fearfully toward the jungle. "'His companion laughed nervously and moved away to repeat the conversation.' with variations and exaggerations, to others of the soldiers, so that it was not long before a frightful tale of black magic and sudden death was woven about the giant prisoner and had gone the rounds of the camp. And deep in the gloomy jungle, amidst the darkening shadows of the falling night, a hairy, man-like creature swung swiftly southward upon some secret mission of his own. We'll return with chapter 23, right after these sponsor messages. AND NOW CHAPTER 23 A NIGHT OF TERROR To Jane Clayton, waiting in the tree where Werper had placed her, it seemed that the long night would never end, yet end it did at last, and within an hour of the coming of dawn her spirits leaped with renewed hope at sight of a solitary horseman approaching along the trail. The flowing burnous with its loose hood, hid both the face and the figure of the rider, but that it was Monsieur Fricult the girl well knew. "'since he had been garbed as an Arab, "'and he alone might be expected to seek her hiding-place. "'That which she saw relieved the strain of the long night vigil, "'but there was much that she did not see. "'She did not see the black face beneath the white hood, "'nor the file of Eben horsemen beyond the trail's bend "'riding slowly in the wake of their leader. "'These things she did not see at first, "'and so she leaned downward toward the approaching rider, "'a cry of welcome forming in her throat.' At the first word the man looked up, reigning in surprise, and as she saw the black face of Abdul Morak, the Abyssinian, she shrank back in terror among the branches, but it was too late. The man had seen her, and now he called her to descend. At first she refused, but when a dozen black cavalrymen drew up behind their leader, and that Abdul Morak's command, one of them started to climb the tree after her, she realized that resistance was futile and came slowly down to stand upon the ground before this new captor, and plead her cause in the name of justice and humanity. Angered by recent defeat, and by the loss of the gold, the jewels, and his prisoners, Abdul Morak was in no mood to be influenced by any appeal to those softer sentiments to which, as a matter of fact, he was almost a stranger, even under the most favorable conditions. He expected degradation and possible death, "'in punishment for his failures and his misfortunes "'when he should have returned to his native land "'and made his report to Menelik. "'But an acceptable gift might temper the wrath of the emperor, "'and surely this fair flower of another race "'should be gratefully received by the black ruler.' "'When Jane Clayton had concluded her appeal, "'Abdul Morak replied briefly that he would promise her protection, "'but that he must take her to his emperor. "'The girl did not need ask him why, and once again hope died within her breast. Resignedly she permitted herself to be lifted to a seat behind one of the troopers, and again, under new masters, her journey was resumed toward what she now began to believe was her inevitable fate. Abdul Morak, bereft of his guides by the battle he had waged against the raiders, and himself unfamiliar with the country, had wandered far from the trail he should have followed, and as a result had made but little progress toward the north, "'since the beginning of his flight. "'Today he was beating toward the west "'in the hope of coming upon a village "'where he might obtain guides. "'But night found him still as far "'from the realization of his hopes "'as had the rising sun. "'It was a dispirited company "'which went into camp, "'waterless and hungry, "'in the dense jungle. "'Attracted by the horses, "'lions roared about the boma, "'and to their hideous din "'was added the shrill neighs "'of the terror-stricken beasts they hunted.' There was little sleep for man or beast, and the sentries were doubled that there might be enough on duty both to guard against the sudden charge of an overbold or over-hungry lion, and to keep the fire blazing which was an even more effectual barrier against them than the thorny boma. It was well past midnight, and as yet Jane Clayton, notwithstanding that she had passed a sleepless night the night before, had scarcely more than dozed. A sense of impending danger seemed to hang like a black pall over the camp. The veteran troopers of the black emperor were nervous and ill at ease. Abdul Morak left his blankets a dozen times to pace restlessly back and forth between the tethered horses and the crackling fire. The girl could see his great frame silhouetted against the lurid glare of the flames, and she guessed from the quick, nervous movements of the man that he was afraid. The roaring of the lions rose in sudden fury, until the earth trembled to the hideous chorus. The horses shrilled their neighs of terror as they lay back upon their halter ropes in their mad endeavors to break loose. A trooper, braver than his fellows, leaped among the kicking, plunging, fear-maddened beasts in a futile attempt to quiet them. A lion, large and fierce and courageous, leaped almost to the boma, full in the bright light from the fire." A sentry raised his piece and fired, and that little leaden pellet unstoppered the vials of hell upon the terror stricken camp. The shot plowed a deep and painful furrow in the lion's side, arousing all the bestial fury of the little brain, but abating not a whit the power and vigor of the great body. Unwounded, the boma and the flames might have turned him back, but now the pain and the rage wiped caution from his mind, and with a loud and angry roar. "'he topped the barrier in an easy leap "'and was among the horses. "'What had been pandemonium before "'became now an indescribable tumult "'of hideous sound. "'The stricken horse upon which the lion leaped "'shrieked out in its terror and its agony. "'Several about it broke their tethers "'and plunged madly about the camp. "'Men leaped from their blankets "'and with guns ready ran toward the picket line, "'and then from the jungle beyond the boma "'a dozen lions, Emboldened by the example of their fellow charged fearlessly upon the camp singly and in twos and threes they leaped the boma until the little enclosure was filled with cursing men and screaming horses battling for their lives with the green-eyed devils of the jungle with the charge of the first lion Jane Clayton had scrambled to her feet and now she stood horror-struck at the scene of savage slaughter that swirled and eddied about her Once a bolting horse knocked her down, and a moment later a lion, leaping in pursuit of another terror-stricken animal, brushed her so closely that she was again thrown from her feet. Amidst the crackling of rifles and the growls of the carnivora rose the death screams of stricken men and horses as they were dragged down by the blood-mad cats. The leaping carnivora and the plunging horses prevented any concerting action by the Abyssinians. It was every man for himself, and in the melee— the defenseless woman was either forgotten or ignored by her captors. A score of times was her life menaced by charging lions, by plunging horses, or by the wildly fired bullets of the frightened troopers. Yet there was no chance of escape, for now, with the fiendish cunning of their kind, the tawny hunters commenced to circle about their prey, hemming them within a ring of mighty yellow fangs and sharp long talons. Again and again, an individual lion would dash suddenly among the frightened men and horses, and occasionally a horse, goaded to frenzy by pain or terror, succeeded in racing safely through the circling lions, leaping the boma and escaping into the jungle. But for the men and the women, no such escape was possible. A horse, struck by a stray bullet, fell beside Jane Clayton. A lion leaped across the expiring beast, "'full upon the breast of a black trooper just beyond. "'The man clubbed his rifle and struck futilely at the broad head, "'and then he was down, and the carnivore was standing above him. Shrieking out his terror, "'the soldier clawed with puny fingers at the shaggy breast "'in vain endeavor to push away the grinning jaws. "'The lion lowered his head, "'the gaping fangs closed with a single sickening crunch "'upon the fear-distorted face, "'and turning, strode back across the body of the dead horse, "'dragging his limp and bloody burden with him. "'Wide-eyed, the girl stood watching. "'She saw the carnivore step upon the corpse, "'stumblingly, as the grizzly thing swung between its forepaws, "'and her eyes remained fixed in fascination "'while the beast passed within a few paces of her. "'The interference of the body seemed to enrage the lion. "'He shook the inanimate clay venomously. "'He growled and roared hideously at the dead, insensate thing.' and then he dropped it and raised his head to look about in search of some living victim upon which to wreak his ill-temper. His yellow eyes fastened themselves balefully upon the figure of the girl, the bristling lips raised, disclosing the grinning fangs. A terrific roar broke from the savage throat, and the great beast crouched to spring upon this new and helpless victim. Quiet had fallen early upon the camp where Tarzan and Werper lay securely bound, Two nervous sentries paced their beats, their eyes rolling often toward impenetrable shadows of the gloomy jungle. The others slept, or tried to sleep, all but the ape man. Silently and powerfully he strained at the bonds which fettered his wrists. The muscles knotted beneath the smooth brown skin of his arms and shoulders. The veins stood out upon his temples from the force of his exertions. A strand parted, another, and another, and one hand was free. Then from the jungle came a low guttural, and the ape-man became suddenly a silent, rigid statue, with ears and nostrils straining to span the black void where his eyesight could not reach. Again came the uncanny sound from the thick verdure beyond the camp. A sentry halted abruptly, straining his eyes into the gloom. The hair upon his head stiffened and raised. He called to his comrade in a hoarse whisper. "'Did you hear it?' he asked. The other came closer, trembling. Hear what? Again was the weird sound repeated, followed almost immediately by a similar and answering sound from the camp. The sentries drew close together, watching the black spot from which the voice seemed to come. Trees overhung the boma at this point, which was upon the opposite side of the camp from them. They dared not approach. Their terror even prevented them from arousing their fellows. They could only stand in frozen fear and watch for the fearsome apparition they momentarily expected to see leap from the jungle. Nor had they longed to wait. A dim, bulky form dropped lightly from the branches of a tree into the camp. At the sight of it, one of the sentries recovered command of his muscles and his voice. Screaming loudly to awaken the sleeping camp, he leaped toward the flickering watchfire and threw a massive brush upon it. The white officer and the black soldiers sprang from their blankets. THE FLAMES LEAPED HIGH UPON THE REJUVENATED FIRE, LIGHTING THE ENTIRE CAMP, AND THE AWAKENED MEN SHRANK BACK IN SUPERSTITIOUS TERROR FROM THE SIGHT THAT MET THEIR FRIGHTENED AND ASTONISHED VISION. A DOZEN HUGE AND HAIRY FORMS LOOMED LARGE beneath THE TREES AT THE FAR SIDE OF THE ENCLOSURE. THE WHITE GIANT, ONE HAND FREED, HAD STRUGGLED TO HIS KNEES AND WAS CALLING TO THE FRIGHTFUL NOCTURNAL VISITORS IN A HIDEOUS MEDLEY OF bestial GUTTURALS, BARKINGS AND GROWLINGS. "'Werper had managed to sit up. "'He, too, saw the savage faces "'of the approaching anthropoids "'and scarcely knew whether to be relieved "'or terror-stricken. "'Growling, the great apes leaped forward "'toward Tarzan and Werper. "'Chulk led them. "'The Belgian officer called to his men "'to fire upon the intruders, "'but the soldiers held back, filled as they were with superstitious terror "'of the hairy tree-men, "'and with the conviction that the white giant "'who could thus summon the beasts of the jungle "'to his aid, was more than human.' Drawing his own weapon, the officer fired, and Tarzan, fearing the effect of the noise upon his really timid friends, called to them to hasten and fulfill his commands. A couple of the apes turned and fled at the sound of the firearm, but Chulk and a half-dozen others waddled rapidly forward and, following the ape-man's directions, seized both him and Werper and bore them off toward the jungle. By dint of threats, reproaches, and profanity, the Belgian officer succeeded in persuading his trembling command to fire a volley after the retreating apes. A ragged, straggling volley it was, but at least one of its bullets found a mark, for as the jungle closed about the hairy rescuers, Chulk, who bore Werper across his one broad shoulder, staggered and fell. In an instant he was up again, but the Belgian guessed from this unsteady gait that he was hard hit. He lagged far behind the others, and it was several minutes after they had halted at Tarzan's command before he came slowly up to them, reeling from side to side, and at last falling again beneath the weight of his burden and the shock of his wound. As Chulk went down, he dropped Werper, so that the latter fell face forward with the body of the ape lying half across him. In this position, the Belgian felt something resting against his hands, which were still bound at his back, something that was not part of the hairy body of the ape. Mechanically, the man's fingers felt of the object resting almost in their grasp. It was a soft pouch filled with small, hard particles. Werper gasped in wonderment as recognition filtered through the incredulity of his mind. It was impossible, and yet it was true. This ape had held the jewels. Feverishly, he strove to remove the pouch from the ape and transfer it to his own possession but the restricted radius to which his bonds held his hands prevented this, though he did succeed in tucking the pouch with its precious contents inside the waistband of his trousers. Tarzan, sitting at a short distance, was busy with the remaining knots of the cords which bound him. Presently flung aside the last of them and rose to his feet. Approaching Werper, he knelt beside him. For a moment he examined the ape. "'Quite dead,' he announced. "'It is too bad.' It was a splendid creature. And then he turned to the work of liberating the Belgian. He freed his hands first, and then commenced upon the knots at his ankles. I can do the rest, said the Belgian. I have a small pocket knife, which they overlooked when they searched me. And in this way, he succeeded in ridding himself of the ape-man's attentions that he might find and open his little knife and cut the thong which fastened the pouch about Chulk's shoulder, and transfer it from the waistband to the breast of his shirt. Then he rose and approached Tarzan. Once again had avarice claimed him. Forgotten were the good intentions which the confidence of Jane Clayton in his honor had awakened. What she had done, the little pouch had undone. How had it had come upon the person of the great ape, Werper could not imagine, unless it had been that the anthropoid had witnessed his fight with Ahmed Zek, seen the Arab with the pouch, and taken it away from him but that this pouch contained the jewels of opar, Werper was positive, and that was all that interested him greatly. "'Now,' said the ape-man, "'keep your promise to me. Lead me to the spot where you last saw my wife.' It was slow work pushing through the jungle in the dead of night behind the slow-moving Belgian. The ape-man chafed at the delay, but the European could not swing through the trees as could his more agile and muscular companions.' and so the speed of all was limited to that of the slowest. The apes trailed out behind the two white men for a matter of a few miles, but presently their interest lagged. The foremost of them halted in a little glade, and the others stopped at his side. There they sat peering from beneath their shaggy brows at the figures of the two men forging steadily ahead, until the latter disappeared in the leafy trail beyond the clearing. Then an ape sought a comfortable couch beneath the tree. "'and one by one the others followed his example, "'so that Werper and Tarzan continued their journey alone. "'Nor was the latter either surprised or concerned. "'The two had gone but a short distance beyond the glade "'where the apes had deserted them, "'when the roaring of distant lions fell upon their ears. "'The ape-man paid no attention to the familiar sounds "'until the crack of a rifle came faintly from the same direction. "'And when this was followed by the shrill neighing of horses,' and that almost continuous fusillade of shots intermingled with increased and savage roaring of a large troop of lions, he became immediately concerned. "'Someone is having trouble over there,' he said, turning toward Werper. "'I'll have to go to them. They may be friends.' "'Your wife might be among them,' suggested the Belgian, for since he had again come into possession of the pouch, he had become fearful and suspicious of the ape-man, and in his mind— had constantly revolved many plans for eluding this giant Englishman, who was at once his saviour and his captor. At the suggestion, Tarzan started as though struck with a whip. "'God!' he cried. "'She might be, and the lions are attacking them. They're in the camp. I can tell from the screams of the horses. And there! That was the cry of a man in his death agonies. "'Stay here, man. I will come back for you. I must go first to them.' and swinging into a tree, the lithe figure swung rapidly off into the night with the speed and silence of a disembodied spirit. For a moment, Werper stood where the ape-man had left him. Then a cunning smile crossed his lips. "'Stay here,' he said to himself. "'Stay here, and wait till you return to find to take these jewels? Not I, my friend, not I.' And turning abruptly eastward, Albert Werper passed through the foliage of a hanging vine, and out of the sight of his fellow man, forever. Tune in next week for the last two chapters, chapter 24 and 25 of Tarzan of the Apes, The Jewels of Opar. We've had a lot of great reviews for 1001 Stories for the Road, and I'd like to share some with you. 1001 Stories for the Road, five stars. Hi, John. I've enjoyed listening to your different 1001 podcast. I've been listening to the 1001 stories for the road, in particular, Tarzan and the Jewels from Opar. By the way, the last chapters that you posted were 18 and 19. I was just wondering when you're going to finish up the book, The Jewels of Opar. Keep up the good work, Kelly. And Kelly, thank you. We probably crossed paths when you wrote this review, and I plugged in those two episodes. So 20 and 21 are in there, and I'm so glad you let me know. Thanks for your review. That one from Kelly. RKB55 Apple Podcast US. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next Sunday at noon with the two final chapters from Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. Until then, everyone, stay safe and we'll be back soon.